Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Okay, listeners, I have the essentially the co-host at this point, uh, my friend Lisa Mullinax here to talk about imposter syndrome, but not today. So we're going to talk about the fact that you and I both see a lot of trainers kind of crying imposter syndrome out in, in dog groups and other places. It's a big topic of discussion amongst dog trainers, and I've actually talked about it on the podcast before, but today we're not really talking about it. (laughs) We're talking about (laughs) what we believe might be masquerading as imposter syndrome. And the good news is it's kind of better and more actionable, I think. So imposter syndrome is this persistent inability to believe that one's success is deserved or has been legitimately achieved as a result of one's own efforts or skills. It is, you know, high achieving people not believing in their own achievements. The, would you agree, Lisa, that kind of the defining, one of the defining characteristics of imposter syndrome is achievement? Absolutely. Absolutely. And even after those things have been achieved, even after people have been praised for that achievement, there is that inner voice that says either they have just fooled mm-hmm. everyone or, right, it, it wasn't as good or. Yeah, yeah. And so. So definitely. I get the sense of like, I would call it imposter syndrome if like a person publishes a book that is really highly regarded by our field. And yet they don't believe that that book has done any help or has, has contributed to the field. Right. It's more like that, but I don't know about you, but when I see particularly newer trainers saying that they're experiencing imposter syndrome what I believe them to be experiencing is actually kind of an awareness of what they don't know or an awareness of a kind of hole in their learning or hole in their skill set, which is a yes. different thing. I, it's a very different thing. So we're going to look at this through a couple of different lenses, but there's this ladder of learning or learning matrix, or there's so many names for it, but essentially it is that learning or understanding is occurs in four different levels. And the first level is you're unconsciously unskilled. So that's when you don't know what you're doing, but you don't know enough to know that you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) Right. You've learned a little bit. And it feels like you have learned all there is to learn, which people may have also seen described as the Dunning-Kruger effect. Right. So in, in, in Dunning-Kruger, you are unconsciously 
unskilled, but you believe yourself to be skilled. And then in level two, you are consciously unskilled, meaning you still do not quite have the skill set that you need, but you're aware of it now. Right. Level three being consciously skilled. So you are, this is not second nature to you yet, but you are capable. And then the level four being unconsciously skilled, essentially meaning you could do this in your sleep. You are so good at it that you don't need to think about it. I'm going to say in dog training, that's not necessarily relevant for us to like believe that we need to get to a place where we don't need to think or talk to colleagues. Um, So it's kind of based on physical or like motor learning things, which applies a lot more as far as the unconsciously skilled kind of piece comes in. I feel like where that one is important to recognize in ourselves. And I think the example I had had used when we were talking about it before was that there are times that you might be working with a dog or even a client's dog and you're getting a result that the client isn't able to replicate. Mm-hmm. That's totally it. And it's because, yeah, it's because you are unconsciously applying things that you may be aren't as aware of. And so you're not instructing your client in those, Mm. in those pieces that will lead to their success. Yes. And so that's where, this is something that I say that might frustrate some people, but essentially I believe that if, if you've got like a skill ranking and a 10 is like the most skilled person in the world, and then a one is like this, it's this person's first day. I do not believe that the one's best teacher is the 10. I believe the one's best teacher is like four or five. And that your fives or sixes are going to have a hope of learning from the 10. But still, the 10 is probably best teaching, you know, the seven and eights, maybe the nines. Yeah. And that's kind of where that comes in. You're You're unconsciously skilled, meaning you don't even know that you have this skill anymore but you do have it and it's clear in your work that you have it. Yeah. And I have, you know, sat in seminars before where I was watching somebody like a seven or an eight try to coach twos and threes. And it was painful for me to watch because I could tell Mm -hmm. what pieces of information were just completely being left out because they were assumed by this high level teacher and completely not present in these low-level learners. Right. I had this recently myself where I was instructing a client and I was demonstrating and I was talking to them about how we were going to do this. And then as I'm demonstrating, the client says, oh, why are you throwing the treat on the floor instead of handing it to the dog? And then I realized, okay, I didn't even talk about this because I'm not even thinking yeah. about why I'm doing it that way. And and so it was a good good reminder for me to stop mm-hmm. and, you know, break that down a little bit more for them. And I would say that there's even something that's not on this ladder that is more present in another model that we're going to talk about in a minute that... If you're like, if the scale is one to 10, but you're like, 
Like, I think becoming an 11 is then being able to articulate it to the one. So like, I like to say that if you can't explain yeah. it to a six-year-old, you don't know what you don't know it well enough. Right. So, and it doesn't matter what we're talking about. Science communication, really good science communication is a scientist who knows their field so well that they can, you know, sit on a news interview or something and explain it to this person sitting here who is not only not on their, not even close to on their level, but also potentially committed to misunderstanding them. And so that's sometimes where we have to come in as dog trainers. I would say most of the time, if the person hired you, they're not committed to misunderstanding you. Although I think that I've had clients who were committed to misunderstanding me or committed to just kind of me being wrong because they maybe didn't want to do what I wanted them to do. I think that's rare. I think my clients, I think generally speaking, if things are not going well, there's a communication problem and the communication needs to be better. But we certainly get those clients every once in a while that seem to just be looking for us to come in and confirm that everything they're doing is correct. It's interesting, right? Like sometimes they do want to be told (laughs) that, yes, in fact, this dog is an asshole. And um, and I'm so sorry that you landed with this dog. And what a shame. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You've done such a great job so far. I think that that's not most people, but I do. I think But I do think it's everybody on like some level. Like everybody kind of does want to not be told that they're the problem. Even though if you're the problem, (laughs) you can then fix it. Right? Like nobody likes to be told they're the problem. So. I mean, even me, right? Like. Yeah. First few times you met Simon, I was You're like, like, he's, he's weird, yeah. right? <laughs> Please confirm like, for me agree. that he's weird. <laughs> he's, he's weird. <laughs> well, and and I, you know, I think where the, this piece that we're looking at in terms of skill and the ability to explain things, maybe it's not that it's willful on the client's part, but maybe there's someone else in their household, their partner, their kids, someone else that needs it explained a different way for you to get buy-in. Like I've had households where the person who hired me was like a special education teacher. Oh my gosh, they're Mm -hmm. the best clients ever, right? Because they have this understanding, but then maybe their partner doesn't have that background. So while we might be able to use a little more shorthand with the main client, we need to be able to break it down for the other person. And If we can't do that, like if we're having a hard time explaining everything to the client or we're having a hard time with the case, I think that culturally right now we'll start to feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. And then the culture lends us in the training community to label that discomfort imposter syndrome because you're having feelings of I'm not good enough. And then you're label or I'm not whatever enough for this situation. And then you're labeling it imposter syndrome because that's kind of culturally popular to do so. Right. But it's so not helpful. In fact, I wish the phrase imposter syndrome would just go die. <laughs> I, yeah. it's not helpful. It's not. Well, it doesn't give you any objective criteria for improvement. It doesn't. It says this is a flaw it within yourself. It says it's inside you. Right. right. It says the problem is your, inside you. The problem is your feeling, is what it says. And I, yes, I'm sorry to tell everybody, but if you take on a case that is outside your current skill set, 
and then you feel uncomfortable and then you label it imposter syndrome and you say your feelings are the problem. We got a big problem in our industry because your feelings aren't the problem. Your skill set's the problem or your lack thereof. Right. And here's what you can do though, is I would just encourage everybody to, if you are having those feelings of imposter syndrome, to check yourself against this next model that some of you have probably heard of called Bloom's Taxonomy, which is essentially this way of looking at learning as a process in different phases. So at the bottom of it, we've got the remember and understand phases. So remembering is just, you know, we all learned in public school how to recall facts. That's basically what they taught you. Recall facts, pass test, right? That's the remember phase. This remember piece of this pyramid is being able to define, list, repeat, and state basic concepts. And a lot of our fields certifications are going to fall here. If you sit down and you take a test and you are able to recall the facts of training, there are quite a few different programs that are going to spit you out a piece of paper for being able to do that, right? And that's all fine and great and a great place to begin. The next phase in the period is, pyramid is understand, which is explaining. You're, you can now explain the ideas or the concepts. So you can kind of discuss them, identify them, recognize them. So if remember is, I can recall for you the four quadrants of operant conditioning, blah, blah, blah. But then understand is, I can say, okay, then in this scenario, which quadrants are at play? And you can tell me what which quadrants look like they're at play. That's understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that if you are in this understand or remember phase on something, and you get called in on a case that you intellectually understand how to apply a behavior modification protocol for it, but you do not have application experience, experience and you might be fumbling through that next level, which is the apply level, the ability to apply. That's when I see these young trainers crying imposter syndrome, Lisa. They get yes. it. They've gone through the courses. They've taken the tests. They've read the books. They maybe have even done it with their own dog, but then they show up and they're fumbling with the next level in their understanding, which is apply. Right. And then they're going, oh, I'm, I'm such an imposter. I don't actually know. Ooh, it's right. my, and then it's my feelings that are the problem when your feelings aren't the problem. You need more education. Yeah. I have this certificate or my certification that says I do mm. know. And, and those those are important. Those are really good measurements for us as professionals to say, here's the base level of knowledge that this person has. And, and so I, you know, and I think you agree that they, they are important. I, I kind of look at them as not me telling everyone, here's what I know, but as me checking yeah. my own knowledge. Yeah. Do I, am I where I think I am? That's what this? I think. I would love to push folks to do if they believe that they're experiencing imposter syndrome, check your knowledge against this framework and say, am I actually yes. in the apply phase or am I fumbling into it right. because I'm not there yet and I'm learning as I do, which is as an industry, typically how we add that piece to our pyramid, the apply level gets added 
by taking what we can remember and understand and putting it to use in a trial and error way with clientele while taking money. Yeah. And, and I did, I mean, I'm not like pointing fingers. This is absolutely how I learned. I did too. And, you know, I know at the, at the time for me, um, in the area where I lived at the time, there were very few positive trainers who were taking any reactivity or aggression. Mm-hmm. So my options were very limited in terms of referral, in terms of mentoring. Mm-hmm. So I took cases that were that were beyond my knowledge and skill mm-hmm. at the time. Because my alternative was to say, well, the only other trainers at this time, 15 years ago or something, were not going to use skilled application of aversive methods. You had the very common, I need to do it because I will at least do no harm kind of right. way of, of thinking about things. I was just broke. So I, there were plenty of, <laughs> there were plenty of R plus trainers around. <laughs> But I, Which, I was uh, broke, and so anybody who called my number, I, I would show up and do what they needed me to do. Which, if trainers listening have not listened to your podcast on valuing your mm-hmm. services. With Aaron Moore. Yeah, that's really important. It was great. Because, yeah, I was also vastly, vastly and undercharging. But too. yeah, so you're, you're broke, or maybe there's nobody else who's going to do this dirty job, and you got to do it. Like, it's... We get it. If you're feeling yeah. impostery, check those feelings though. Kind of go, am I feeling like yes. I have achieved this, but don't believe in my achievement? Or have I literally not achieved it yet? And I'm not sure I can. Right. Knowledge I have this knowledge. I've got the remember and I the have. understand kind of phases in this pyramid, uh, this Bloom's taxonomy. The apply phase is right above that. And I think we fumble into that phase as a as an industry, even if we get a formal education, it doesn't give us a lot in the applied. Yeah. I think what is important to put this in perspective for people is the remembering, understanding, and application phases. This is what we need our clients to be able to do, mm. right? We are teaching them how to do something, understanding maybe why they're doing it or when it is appropriate to do that thing and then to be able to apply it on their own. Which means that you need to be above the application phase if you're going to teach somebody else to apply. Above the apply phase is the analyze phase. And this is where I think that most dog trainers out in the field, they at least fumble into that apply level of understanding and they're, they're there on at least, you know, a good amount of their cases, Right. The analyze phase is about drawing connections among ideas. It's about comparing. It's about being able to experiment intelligently, questioning the things that you've done, testing different things. The analyze Mm -hmm. phase is where you get smarter about the things that you've learned how to do. You get smarter about how to do them, right? So it's like I can read through a protocol be able to recall the Mm -hmm. protocol, understand the protocol, be able to explain it. I can execute the protocol. And that's all in that bottom amount of the uh, half of the pyramid. When I'm getting into the upper half of the pyramid, I can now question the protocol. I can now say, but wouldn't this work better than that? And can I give it a try? And can I give it a try intelligently enough that I see 
if it's a good idea or not. So like you throwing food on the ground instead of handing food to the dog's mouth, you got there through this analyze phase in some way. You just yes. weren't totally aware of it because you it's in the unconscious skill set for you. Like it's just there. But yeah. you got there by at some point putting food on the ground instead of putting it in the dog's face. Yeah. Or and you know, it could very well have been and and you know, I think this is probably the case that I went to a seminar at some point for something and whatever, you know, protocol was being taught at that seminar use that piece of delivering the food on the ground instead of by hand. And then at some point, when I hit that analyze process, that piece kind of stuck that, oh, it's not only within this protocol, like this piece of this protocol might work really well in this situation, right? I'm analyzing it. I think it's also that piece where you're not just remembering the protocol and memorizing it, but you are also being able to pick apart each piece of that protocol and maybe identify what pieces of learning are happening, what processes are being applied, right? You can you can really, you can say, this is why this mm-hmm. works, or this is maybe why this isn't working for this dog, this case. Yeah. And then we start to get into the evaluate towards yes. the top half here, the pyramid, which is basically you can justify your decisions. You can justify your choices. You can justify your arguments. You can say, this is just an example. People don't come at me. You can say, no, you know, I have tried bat 3.0 and bat 1.0 is still working really well for me. And here's why, right? Like I, you can evaluate it. You can say, you know, I remember, understand I'm able to apply and I was able to analyze these protocols that I was given. And now I can say with confidence, this is the version I like, and this is the version that works for me and my clients. And here's why that's that top half of the pyramid. And then we get to the very top of the pyramid. You know, speaking of bat, you've got create here. It's Mm -hmm. producing new or original work. It's saying I've gone through all of these phases. I have now made a thing. And I now give it out and can teach it to others. You know, great examples being obviously bat, like I said, but like um, cat as well. Control Control unleashed. unleashed. Yeah. These these things that have been produced and created by people who have gotten to that top part of the pyramid. Also, really important, you might be in the top part of the pyramid when it comes to like reactivity, but you don't know a damn thing about training uh, service dogs, right? Or whatever, right? Like, exactly. this isn't just like dog training, the the thing, the one thing. This is me as a dog trainer. Yeah, I'm looking at my skills. At, or, you know, I am at this I'm piece. looking at my clients. I would say when it comes to like separation anxiety, I'm in the bottom half of the pyramid. I Same. understand I, the protocols. I understand the principles. I yes. have done a lot of learning in this regard. I have applied it on a small level, mostly with personal dogs. And I don't take clients for that behavior problem because I recognize that I'm in the bottom half of the pyramid. In fact, I screen them. Like I have, I've been in an email conversation with somebody back and forth for about a week because I believe that might actually be what her dog is experiencing versus what she originally contacted me for. Yeah. And 
I want to be sure that I don't take a case that's outside of my skill set. Right. And, you know, that's where I find that this Bloom's taxonomy is really important in terms of our self-evaluation, because the applying, the remembering, understanding and applying is great if a client calls you and says, I'm having a problem with my dog um, resource guarding. But in order to really, but but you get there and maybe you're coming up with a protocol mm-hmm. Right. You you have this protocol that you have been told is right, but you get there and it's not actually resource guarding. I mean, how many right. times have it's you a, had a case that someone it's said, a thing that you're going, ooh, I'm not sure I would use that label. Um, I'm not sure this is the right protocol for this. Right. Like it's just which happens all the time, right. which is, you know, why labels can be problematic because people can mean a lot of different right. things when they say a lot of different things like I think that resource guarding is a big ass umbrella that a lot of behaviors fall under. Mm -hmm. And if we were talking about like hovering over the food bowl, snapping and snarling has bitten children in the home. I'm going to put myself in the bottom half of the pyramid for that, Lisa. I'm going to send it to you. So you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks ever so. Um... Versus when it comes to seeing early signs of guarding behavior and having early intervention procedures. I'm all the way at the right. top because it's the breeds that I choose to right. live with. And it's the breeds that most of the people that I have as clientele choose to live with are, are displaying some of those things. But, you know, typically in my yeah. situation, that's just not the kind of call that I get. So if I do happen to get that kind of call, I'm so lucky to have colleagues who I know are in the analyze evaluate phase on that kind of stuff that I can say, I know this person can take care of you. But and likewise, I, I want to say, because again, resource guarding is a huge mm-hmm. umbrella. If we are talking about multiple dogs in the home, resource guarding from one mm-hmm. another, I'm kicking that case <laughs> And then right the ball comes back into because... my court. Exactly. <laughs> and we are not over the volleyball net. Oh my God. Can you imagine you and I doing anything sportsy? Like, what a joke. That would be so ridiculous. <laughs> We'd both be like Daria we standing really there. We would on the sidelines yeah. with our, yeah. It's really funny. With our yeah. wine and cheese <laughs> being like, woo, that was really good. Exactly. Is exactly. it done yet? Is it over? <laughs> Throw the ball in the yeah. bowl thing. Um, so what, though, is a trainer to do? You got a young trainer. <laughs> they're feeling impostery. They check themselves against Bloom's taxonomy. They go, oh, no, this is an imposter syndrome. This is, I need to be in the analyze phase because this is a tough one and I'm not, I'm, I'm in the apply phase, I think, but it's throwing me curveballs and I need to be in the analyze phase. What are we going to do about that? Well, here's what I don't recommend <laughs> is going into an online discussion mm-hmm. group and asking for direction there. Because even when that online discussion group has trainers who may have that experience, if you're not in the analyze the phase, you're going to if you're get, not in the analyze phase, you can't actually right. filter through the answers that you're getting. You're going to get, yeah, you're going to get things that are completely wacky mm-hmm. to things that are hostile and everything in between. Gosh. And if you're new to that, that's going to be really frustrating. And it's also going to be hard to identify what the right answer is. I mean, early in my career, I was shredded in an online group and I was up all night crying. This story makes me so mad. I'm still mad. You're triggering me. I'm so uh, angry that this happened to you. (laughs) 
It was, yeah, and it was a well-known person mm-hmm. at the time and, you know, very public criticism mm-hmm. and talk about shutting down. Like, that crushed me. Yeah, and, and so that kind of you know, thing can and, happen to you. Oh, yeah. That kind of thing can happen to you. But also, like, you, if you're running into people who would do that kind of thing in those groups... It's just, do we want to be in this group? Like, we don't want to be. And, you know, people love their groups. And I'm not going to take it away from them. But you got to hold your group also against Bloom's Taxonomy. You got to go, where do I feel like this person is? Yeah. And, And, yeah, I also think that, like, when we are talking about getting advice for a case where we're going to be taking money, the group are kind of the, you know, throw the pasta against the wall and see what sticks, right? Because you're getting so many things. Can you imagine if, okay, so for instance, doctors in your higher end institutions are going to have weekly meetings where they discuss cases with each other. Can you imagine if instead of a weekly meeting, it was a Facebook group and there was literally no barrier to entry in this Facebook group? Like, that's what we're talking about. And now your medical condition is being discussed with there's no barrier for entry in this group. So you can have somebody who's like, well, yes, I cured that with coconut oil. And actually, you need surgery. Like, it's just, it's one of those kind of issues with our field is that we're all desperate for better community and we're desperate for more information. And so these groups are born. More and more, though, because clever people who are seeing this problem in the industry, more and more mentorship programs are happening. They're popping up. Yes. And that's where you're feeling like you're in this bottom half of the pyramid situation. You want to get higher up in the pyramid. You can get there with that mentorship. Yes. And in the past, and I'm sure you encountered this too, mentorship was viewed as a trainer reaching out to a more experienced trainer Mm. and asking if they could Mm -hmm. shadow them on their Mm -hmm. appointment. And I had a really bad experience with one person on that one who felt, I mean, when we're talking about Dunning-Kruger, they um, felt very comfortable jumping in and making suggestions (laughs) during that shadowing appointment. But what it feels like to the person seeking a mentor is that, They're just asking to shadow. They're not taking anything from that trainer. They're just there to watch and learn, which is great. And I certainly learned a whole lot from my first mentor that way. But it is, it can be challenging for that trainer. I know for me, it was like, okay, I've got to, once I get a case that I think would be right, I need to reach out to this mentee tell them, you know, find out what their availability is so I can then go back to the client and, you know, or I schedule with the client and then I go to the mentee and, well, they can't come to the first one that that they can come to the second one, right? It starts to become a little more complex than just shadowing. Yeah. And also, even though shadowing is kind of something that we're all familiar with, something that we've heard of, it just doesn't feel like what's needed, I don't need to come watch you. I need to learn. I need to practice my application skills and talk through that analyze phase with somebody who is is there, who's above me in this pyramid. 
And that's where that that taking things to the next level, right? Shadowing gets you the remember, the understand, and maybe apply. Mm. It it is through those discussions and continued discussions that gets us to that next level where you can start to analyze and work with that mentor. That mentor can help you work through that analysis process. And you could be right actually in the field taking cases because I also, and I know that we're on the same page with this, hands-on doing of the thing is really, there's no substitute. Mm-hmm. Really, really important to also be, be actually right. training dogs. For sure. Um, For sure. You can be doing that stuff, but checking yourself with a mentor and getting better. And to mm-hmm. me, that's kind of the ideal situation is that you do start out with some book learning, probably some volunteering to get some hands-on time with dogs. And when you feel ready to try your hand at application, having a mentor guide you through that application is really important. And then getting up into that analyze phase, all of that, like that would be the ideal kind of procedure as far as I think. And then once you're up in that analyze phase or you're maybe shooting to the top of the pyramid, now you're ready for those roundtable discussions. Now you are meeting with colleagues who are on the same level and you're talking about those things on a regular basis. Right. But here's, here's the moment where I ask you to talk about the thing that you have built. Yes. So, um, you know, I have, I have seen these challenges, not just in professional dog trainers, but also in animal shelters. Animal shelters are notorious for teaching their staff and volunteers for this behavior, use this protocol, mm-hmm. right? And then when that backfires, we're, we're dealing with, you know, a very tricky situation where it's not just an unhappy client we could be dealing with, right? We could be dealing with the, that animal's successful mm-hmm. outcome. And so I started offering mentorship to people in shelters I, and I, I just realized that there was this need. And so I have, I developed a couple of options. One obviously is a, a one-on-one weekly um, ongoing mentorship where we meet every week. We talk about that person's cases, whether in the shelter or their private cases, we talk through their plans. We talk about how to coach the client because that's a piece, man, you can be the best dog trainer in the world, but if you rub a client the wrong way or you explain something over their mm-hmm. head, uh, you know, we're going to talk about burnout. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and so what you were talking about too, in terms of the benefit of the community in those roundtable discussions, I also see a need for that. So I'm starting a very small group mentorship program limited to just four people, one for shelter people, one for professional trainers, where we do go through and we talk about the cases that they're working on. We we work on plans. We learn from each other's cases. Maybe a case that one person brings is something another trainer has not experienced yet or they've struggled with, right? So we can all learn from those and and create that very small supportive community as well, as opposed to what can be sometimes very anonymous and isolating just in general with the internet. So those start in November. So they're starting November this year, 2023. And of course, everything will be linked for you in the notes. But 
What I think is especially of interest and kind of important here is that we are saying there's a way to climb that ladder into better competency, into higher skill. And it doesn't have to be, you know, that you have to take out a small loan and go take some in-person course and stop your entire life. It can be that you're still working, you still have cases, and you work through those cases with help and with a community you can actually lean on and trust. Right. And in depth, right? You can, you can work through that case start to finish. And it's very, very specific to that client, that behavior. So it's not kind of general advice. It's not. And I also like that you have split the groups into shelter and pet behavior yes. uh, worlds because yes. certainly they're different worlds. Are we still talking about dog behavior? Yes, but the way that you might approach a a set of behavior concerns in a dog that's in a shelter is is going to look different from the way that you might approach it with a dog in a home. And that's another thing I learned the hard way, right? When When you were in that lower part of the pyramid, trying to apply (laughs) in a shelter. Right. Well, and I may have been, you know, I was at a higher point in the pyramid as a private trainer going into the home of clients. And I felt very confident in my abilities then going into the shelter. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I knew what the shelter was doing wrong. I knew how to fix it. I knew how to create all of these perfect plans. And the very first dog I took out of the kennel, (laughs) I went, oh, (laughs) this is different. This is very different. And that's where I started learning too in the multiple shelters that I worked in. You know, what you can do in these cases is is going to change depending on that shelter's resources. Mm. Do you have a, a shelter that has a huge group of very skilled volunteers who are open to learning and open to changing how they've been doing things. That's always mm-hmm. a big challenge in the shelter. Or are you a tiny shelter that has maybe two people that are skilled at doing these things? And so you can't, you know, you have to adapt to those plans so that that shelter can be successful. And I just see too often too many private trainers that say, oh, I'm going to do shelter consulting and tell these shelters what to do. And... As soon as they they find out that that's not going to be possible, now well, we're they're they're now either. operating in a brand new pyramid. Like you might be yep. in the I would consider myself in dog behavior in a general sense at the top of the pyramid. I'm creating. I'm there. If I were yes. to go into a shelter tomorrow and try to consult on the cases. I'm going to now need help. I'm going to now need a mentor. This is not a situation that I'm used to being in. And if I'm being a smart professional, I'm getting help because this isn't because all of these circumstances are so different from the ones that I am actually used to. Right, right. And the resources that are out there for shelters right now are are a little outdated. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's going to take time for all of those to reach the level that people need. So, you know, I think that this is also going to be a way to get people that information really quickly. I love it. So Lisa, where are they going to find you Sarah. and find this information? They can find me at serenitykanine.com. 
And I will, um, I do have that information about the mentoring options available and then um, register or applications for the mentoring groups are going to open up the end of this month, September 2020. Excellent. And to be clear, you do the sessions and you're opening up the groups in November. So you're taking applications for the groups, the sessions, anybody can sign up. Yes. One-on-one whether it's limited, you know, case specific or ongoing, mm-hmm. those are available. Anyone can sign up for those. So somebody takes a case, they're feeling like they can take this case. They start to realize there may be, they, they start to feel impostery. They check themselves against Bloom's taxonomy. They go, mm, maybe it's not. Maybe I am just not in the skill set that I believe myself to be in. They can set up a session. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I hope folks find it helpful. We always like to give people action steps, and I think we did that. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.